Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. The expense of going to college has risen drastically in the last 20 years. And even if students get scholarships or financial aid to cover tuition, there are still other expenses, including books. Students spend $10 billion annually on textbooks in the United States, and the rate at which those costs have risen far outstrips inflation. Those who cannot afford to buy or rent the books may fall behind in their education. Hard copy books can cost as much as $400, with an average price between $80 and $150. But there's been a shift to using more open educational resources. Also called OER, these are teaching and learning resources that are openly licensed and freely available on the web. Teachers can use the material. They can also reuse them, store them, and adapt them for a specific student population. Instructors can often even remix the materials and share them. On this episode, we'll look at how open educational resources are evolving at the University of New Mexico. First, we'll hear from Jennifer Schaller, the Open Educational Resources Librarian at UNM, and Cash Clifton, Director of Academic Communities and a Foundational Math Coordinator. Later on, we'll hear from some more instructors who are using open educational resources. Clifton says this is the future of education. I've replaced textbooks completely in um, some of my classes. And what do you teach? So I teach first-year experience courses. I Mm -hmm. primarily teach math classes. Um, I also teach reading classes, and I teach orientation to UNM classes. I think there's been a larger culture shift in education amongst teachers. Going back about 15 years, it, it would be controversial to bring up OER materials in a faculty meeting. And there would be so many uh, naysayers versus over over time, people have just become more and more open to it. As more people have tried it, um, shown that it can work, I think it's almost become the norm and it's slowly becoming accepted. So it's been a slow process, but I, I think more and more teachers are coming uh, around. I imagine your students are happy that they don't have to buy textbooks. They are, and I I talk to my students about this, and I'll I'll tell the students, foundational math in particular, hey, we used to require $300 worth of textbooks for this course, whereas now we don't, so. Jennifer, you are actually the OER librarian. Mm -hmm. Um, It just opened up last year, and I started on June 1st in 2022. How did you get interested in this? In my previous life, I was an English teacher, and I taught at CNM, Central Mm -hmm. New Mexico Community College, and I wanted to make a course for my students because they were not using the book. They were finding all of the materials online. What course was it? They're they're so smart. I mean, it's just like your composition one and two classes, Mm -hmm. and so we had a reader, and then we also had like chapters that describe different genres of writing and then it would have printed out stories like an anthology and so my students were just looking in the table of contents finding the materials online taking away from their study time to Mm. find the content for the class and I saw that as really problematic so I went to my dean at the time and I asked her if I could make a course on our learning management system that didn't have a textbook that was open and linked to different sources. I mean, not open, but Mm -hmm. free. That way students didn't have to buy the book. The students were also, the students who were buying it were spending about $80. And then there were other students who were buying older editions and they didn't have all the readings. So it just was this every semester, this juggle to like make sure my students had all the materials for class. 
and then also dealing with the bookstore too like sometimes books didn't come in on time mm-hmm. I mean that's a thing that happened so I wanted to just eliminate that and I went to my dean and asked her if I could have a course release to develop the materials for the class to develop the course and she said well instead of making a closed course on this platform where only our students can log in and use it she said the college was starting an OER initiative and I had no idea what an OER was at the time but she said I could start doing it and do the thing you know have the course release and get started with the materials And so that's what got me started with OER. Cash, I'm curious if uh, any of your colleagues have followed suit or they've resisted or what's your experience been? Lots of people have resisted over over the years. Ultimately, everybody's come around. Mm -hmm. So um, we've actually adopted OER materials as a department. So our foundational math courses, our critical text analysis courses, and our transition communities all use OER materials across the board. That wasn't a top-down decision from administration or anything. That was um, the faculty getting on board, and it it was a process. There were semesters where just a couple of us tried the OER approach, but um, o- over time, as, as people saw it was working, more and more people got on board. One challenge is there's concerns about quality. Right. I was going to ask about that. That's a big issue, and that's a legitimate concern. And so there had to be a peer review process where we look these things over. As Jennifer mentioned, depending on the license, you can go in and adapt these things specific to to your needs. And so we very much have made things our own. We start out kind of pulling things off the internet, you know, tweak them, tweak them, tweak them. Whereas now that we're several years in, we have materials and, and activities that are very specific to UNM and that our faculty feel confident or quality because they helped build these things and they helped edit these things. Jennifer, you are the OER librarian for University of New Mexico, Open Educational Resources. So you have this whole world of textbooks, which are peer-reviewed. Is there some kind of comparable system now for these online resources? With the Open Textbook Library, which is created through the Open Education Network, um, they have a whole review system. And we're actually going to start a program like that here at UNM. But faculty read the textbooks on the Open Textbook Library, and then they review them using criteria that have been determined to be useful for OER. And the criteria were created by a different open education system actually in British Columbia. So they Canada has like really awesome OER materials. So there are processes in place. And right now, we're figuring out how to support faculty. So if faculty want to create OER materials, they definitely need to be vetted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would be a part of the process. But right now, we don't have that specifically in place. When I was at CNM, what we did was we found other English instructors who reviewed the materials for us and figured out, like, would this be useful for our students, our curriculum, and then just also going through and proofreading and helping us to edit it. Mm-hmm. So that was how we did it over there. I think also it depends on the discipline and maybe the specific course. Like, I mean, if it's something that is like a higher level, you definitely would want to have that peer reviewed by other professors. But for the general education materials, it's not as like strenuous of a peer review process, you know, like Mm -hmm. 
for composition one, I mean, like the right, there's so many different ways to write a paper too, you know, so we would go through and figure out like, okay, um, you want to include brainstorming, do you want to include outlining, like all of those different processes, but there's so many ways to do this one thing, you know, which is writing. Um, so the needs of like finding people to evaluate the materials were different for that class versus maybe other classes. Um, did that answer you? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> no, I'm just sitting here thinking about, cause you know, I went to college in the stone ages, um, you know, and all the, my Shakespeare book and all these other books I've kept with all my, I'm sure very profound notes mm -hmm. in the margins. So I'm just wondering if, um, that's ever been part of the pushback from any of the instructors around well, you kind know, of that changing paradigm. So. Shakespeare is in the public domain. I know. So that's you don't true. Need, you don't really need to buy the book. <laughs> uh, you can just go on Project Gutenberg and pull but it the, up. But the footnotes. The footnotes are key to the... So my Shakespeare professor, you have to get this edition. These are the footnotes you right. need. I remember some professors are very adamant you must have this translation or this edition and sometimes it was because of the footnotes or the end notes mm -hmm. yeah. and yeah so that's why I'm curious how that yeah. might translate I think that it just depends on the needs of the teacher mm -hmm. um, and if they need though that material for their students then they have like the academic freedom to choose okay. which texts they want their students to mm -hmm. learn from and the whole I mean OER grows best and I'm sure Cash you have had this experience when it's like not imposed on faculty and when it sort of is like more organically grown and people slowly start to buy into it because it does work the diehard people who are like comfortable with digital texts and knew about OER they dove in first and then other people were like okay well this is working I can I'll try it too can I yeah. add something to mm -hmm. that there's also collaboratives across states and across the nation that work together to, to review OER materials in New Mexico we have something really great called NM Delt it's it's turned into um, Propel where a lot of the adult education programs work together in reviewing materials there's a wonderful organization called NROC. They've developed a lot of uh, math and reading materials. Those are um, a collaboration across the United States. And, and so there are some larger uh, national things happening as well in terms of assuring quality. Are those acronyms? They are. In rock, nobody quite agrees on what it stands for anymore. I've, I've even asked their president. I'm going to say National Repository of Online Courses. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of materials made by teachers for teachers. You name a subject and you can see all of these really cool lesson plans and, and worksheets and interactive videos. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. And we're talking about open educational resources with Jennifer Schaller, Open Educational Resources Librarian at UNM, and Cash Clifton, Director of Academic Communities and a Foundational Math Coordinator. Clifton says even though his department has gone away from textbooks to online resources, they still work with book publishers. For example, Alex, the McGraw-Hill product, our students use that to direct their learning, so it determines what they're going to work on next. 
but we've linked in open education resources. So a student doesn't understand something, they click on a menu in Alex, and it links them to some of the NROC videos and textbook explanations and things. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily an either-or thing. Mm-hmm. They can um, work together. That said, I have seen some pushback from publishers over the years. I, it's a major transition. It, it really is. Well, there's a lot of money in textbooks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're challenging an infrastructure that relies on very expensive materials that people are forced to buy. Yeah, but with the pandemic, the publishers were forced to adapt, offering digital materials. So they're having to change the way that they do business as well. Hmm. Have either of you seen any resistance? Because honestly, for professors, authoring a textbook can be lucrative. So I was reading about some efforts around the country, about some pushback around that. I'm just curious if you've run into... There are definitely professors who author those textbooks. And I mean, when you work so hard on material, people like to be paid for their labor. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it does make sense. I think just, you know, things are evolving to where people are just more open to freeing up their materials Mm -hmm. to students, like whole versions of textbooks. There's a chemistry textbook that the author decided to make completely open and he's working with a courseware company and he did it in honor of his son i believe Mm -hmm. who passed away Mm -hmm. so like there's different instances where people are just like you know yeah i can make money but also i can open up these materials and spread information and i mean oer helps to just grow knowledge Mm -hmm. and it also helps for ideas to evolve too I still think there's room for the publishers and OER to, to work together. I think um, artificial intelligence is the future of teaching. I think it's the present of teaching. And, and that's why I like how we've worked together with McGraw-Hill to use their artificial intelligence algorithm to direct the students and help the students while integrating in some of those open educational resources. So, And so do you have a sense of how many instructors or professors are either doing a open educational resources or dipping their toes in or have a hybrid? We definitely need to, to track it better and figure mm-hmm. out who's using the materials and also support them better. But there's like little pockets. I know there are like little pockets of teachers who are using the materials, maybe creating their materials. If you're doing that out there and you're at UNM, let me know. (laughs) You want to know about it. Jennifer wants to know about it. Your open education resources librarian. Please. It would be so great. And then also, I mean, we need to work with the bookstore, too. That's where students go to find their materials. And if their teachers are using OER, like that would be so helpful for the students to know. But other things that are ongoing are... We have an OER steering committee, which has like an associate provost, uh, my dean, director of IT, and then some, a couple of librarians on there. We also have an OER working group. So the two groups kind of work together to inform each other about the efforts. The OER steering committee is made of people who are a little, they're higher up, right? So they can help push along change. Um, And then the working group, is made up of um, faculty and administrators from across the campus and we're working on different aspects of building an OER initiative. 
yeah, we just sort of like work together to figure out how can we push out these ideas. And also we have to work across departments, you know, like the open textbook review program, the way that it's set up is we're going to have a workshop on April 7th and faculty can attend the workshop and then faculty who attend the workshop can sign up to do a review and then faculty who do that review will be compensated $200. We'll also have to like work with other departments to determine like how we can pay them, you know. <laughs> like so just setting up these structures to figure out like how do we help support faculty to do these things. The publishers do that. They give faculty money to review the textbooks. And mm -hmm. so and the purpose of the open textbook review program is also to get faculty actually just looking at, at the books, checking them out, and then evaluating them. And the Open Education Network, which is going to give the workshop, they have found that like 45% of faculty who participate in these programs end up adopting an open textbook. So that's also, you know, just exposing teachers to it, but then also compensating them for their time and their labor it takes a long time to change curriculum and the that is like like the one of the first steps we also want to do other programs too to support faculty mm -hmm. well, cash why is this so important i worry about students who struggle financially i'm, I'm thinking of one particular cnm student from many years ago who was making a choice between buying formula for their child and a textbook so i've seen that as a teacher I experienced that firsthand as a student. I had a math book once that cost um, nearly $500. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, and I'd, I was waiting tables for three twenty-five an hour plus tips. And f that's a lot of hours to buy a textbook like that. And then it ultimately ended up being one of those textbooks we barely used. I think that was my first moment of, of just the, the, this is wrong. Something's got to change. That was Jennifer Schaller, Open Educational Resources Librarian at UNM, and Cash Clifton, Director of Academic Communities and Foundational Math Coordinator. I also spoke with several professors who are using Open Educational Resources. This is David Dixon, a lecturer in the UNM Department of Economics, who started using OER about 10 years ago. My primary motivation was that I know our community really well. I know our demographics and textbooks were $150, $200, and that was a big barrier for my students. And I started in introductory courses and principles courses, and the material there doesn't ever change. I mean, one textbook or another is pretty much the same, and some of them just have nicer pictures or more interesting sidebars or whatever, but the content is pretty universal. What was the reaction from your colleagues when you started doing that? Oh, very positive. Most of the introductory courses are now taught using um, OER materials. And the only reasons the other one aren't is, be is because of inertia. Once, once the instructor has built up a bunch of materials using a specific textbook, it's, it's hard to change. Materials that I use are from OpenStax, and they make available a lot of additional resources like some PowerPoint slides and question banks. And since those are all also open source, I can take them and use them and modify them any way I want to uh, without any question about the intellectual property. As I mentioned, I do teach upper-level courses, and uh, in general, I'm sort of locked into the high-dollar proprietary textbooks for those, although that is changing. I, I see some of the courses that I teach now 
the material is all online. It's just a matter of collating it. The fact that OER materials empower the user, and in my case, me as an instructor, to do a lot of innovative things with that material that would not be possible with proprietary materials, all the way from the, the way in which some things are presented to the way in which additional materials incorporated, which was always possible, but always sort of disjoint when using a, a, um, a publisher's textbook, and to the point of being able to prepare completely new and different materials that may or may not be consistent with what's in the OER materials. But I feel much better saying, use this instead of that, because that textbook is old or wrong or biased. And so use this material instead. And I feel much more empowered to do that than if the student paid $200 for that textbook. My name is Therese Baca-Radler. I am an adjunct instructor with University College at the University of New Mexico in critical text analysis. There was a shift when I began moving away from the traditional textbook, and I started looking for different kinds of books to begin with. I remember my own work at UNM, and I remember in the copy center, I used to pick up all of my readers. I really wanted to work on creating an electronic version for our students that was more relevant to the times. Most of my justification in doing that uh, was that I was working with 18-year-olds, and they really were not interested in the things that were coming out of the textbooks or the smaller readers. Their interests were all over the place, and developmentally, they were at an 18 to you know, 20, 21-year-old level, not in reading, but in maturity. And so the topics, they needed to be something that students were interested in. And I realized with the use of OERs that I could change that. I could really focus on the individual population of students within each class and within each academic year. And I could adjust accordingly in order to cre create more robust curriculum that not only met the needs of the students, but met the interests of the students. And so they wanted to be there. They wanted to read. They wanted to discuss. They wanted to be a part of things. I've always focused much of my curriculum on growth mindset. I was using some texts that were all about growth mindset. And I realized students wanted more about, more with examples on what that looked like. It was fine for me to give pieces of the larger texts and the more comprehensive stuff, um, but they really wanted to read about people who were demonstrating grit and people who were demonstrating growth mindset. And they liked the idea of personal stories. Um, and then they could start to discuss their own stories. So one great example was I had a study that was done on growth mindset with basketballers in Illinois, and my students loved it. And those were some of the best presentations that I've ever had. I had students coming to class who otherwise weren't very interested, but they had something to say. They were interested. They read, they comprehended, and not only did they comprehend, but they had feedback. And so they wanted to show up to class to give feedback. And I think that shows that it was successful. It shows that it was engaging. And uh, I was able to take a complex psychological concept. I was able to get them interested before, before they left my class and went to Psychology 105. The idea of shifting it to meet the needs of the students is a challenging thing to communicate.
that it's not set, that even I as the creator have to go in and make adjustments based on every single class in every single semester. So I think if nothing else, that's the pushback that I get with why is it not complete? Well, it is complete, but we still have to adjust it to meet the needs and the interests of students. So I think that would be the biggest piece of pushback that I get. My name is Zachary Sharp. I'm a distinguished professor at the University of New Mexico and the director of the Center for Stable Isotopes. So I wrote a textbook. It's a graduate level textbook, and it took a long time to do, and it was something that I thought would be beneficial to the community. Uh, when it's finally published, as is so often the case, it's almost universally the case with textbooks and specifically higher level textbooks, is the price is really high. And the books are immediately uh, bought out by libraries, which feel obligated to have these textbooks on hand for the universities. And then experts in the field, and maybe if it was required for a class, some students would get it. But um, it was always very unsatisfying that the costs were so high. And I would visit people in other countries. I would go to India, and the students would say, oh, I have your, your textbook. Would you sign it, sign it for me? I would say, well, of course, sure. And then they would bring me a, a Xerox copy. You know, when a book is well over $100, it's just too much for most students to afford. Um, at some point, we got towards the end of, I think, the first printing. And I remember talking to my editor at a conference and saying, so are we going to do a second printing on this? And he was very hesitant and said, well, yeah, you know, um, we generally care about, and I kind of interrupted and said, you like textbooks where you sell a lot of copies to sort of intro classes. And this is an upper level class where there's not a lot of sales. So, so you don't really care, right? We're not doing a second printing. And he says, yeah, that's kind of right. And I said, great. Okay. Well, can I have the copyright back? And they said, yeah, sure. So after a couple months, I had the copyright back and then uh, decided that my second printing should be done electronically. Eventually, we succeeded in making the book online and freely available, and it's just been a tremendous success. So I don't make any money on it as opposed to making a little bit before, but that's not the point of writing a textbook. I mean, you put a lot of effort into it and don't get much in return. But it was really gratifying to have so many people now around the world being able to download it for free and to use it both in their classes and research. So, um, yeah, at this point, I have had about 38,000 downloads, which is incredible because I don't even think there's that many people in my field. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know who's downloading it, but um, it's there. And, you know, it's nice because if there's a mistake, I can fix it. If I want to have color figures, I can put them in color. I can modify the text in real time. So it's kind of a living book. And I've talked to other people who are writing higher level textbooks like this. And I tell them, I go, don't go through a publisher. It's just, it's a barrier. It takes, you know, a couple of years to get it typeset and published. And then it's really limited because of the cost. So do the open access. It's just a great way to go. It's great. It's great for the students because they don't have the, this money. And it's great for the whole it's great for everything. It just is a really nice way to move forward. You know, there's the downside to me in that I don't make any money on it. And I don't care because it wasn't that much uh, to begin with. 
but the most important downside would now be for a junior level faculty member publishing a book this way, whether he gets the recognition, he or she gets the recognition for their promotion, you know, the tenure and stuff. That seems to me like a pretty easy thing to deal with. The universities just have to come up with a strategy where it's evaluated with the same, uh, you know, importance as a formal textbook, you know, with a reputable journal. That was Zachary Sharp, distinguished professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and director of the Center for Stable Isotopes. Before him was Therese Baca-Radler, an instructor in the First Year Experience Program, and David Dixon, lecturer in the Department of Economics. Thanks also to Jennifer Schaller, the Open Educational Resources Librarian at UNM, and Cash Clifton, Director of Academic Communities and a Foundational Math Coordinator. You can find more information on open educational resources at KUNM.org. That's also where you can find our previous episodes. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. <laughs>